Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Jill Baumgartner. Jill received a PhD in Renaissance and 17th century British literature from Emory University. She taught for 37 years at Wheaton College as professor of English, including four years as vice chair of the faculty and 16 years as dean of humanities and theological studies. She is the author of five collections of poetry, including Finding Cuba, an exploration of her Cuban ancestry. She serves as poetry editor of the Christian Century and is past president of the Conference on Christianity and Literature. Well, I am delighted today to talk with my good friend, former boss and dean. Uh, We go back a number of years, Jill Baumgartner, who is poet extraordinaire, uh, deep thinker, and also a whole lot of fun. So thank you, Jill, for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Thank you, Lynn, for inviting me. And I particularly like that part of your introduction that says I'm a lot of fun. <laughs> well, we have a lot of fun together, right? You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, boy. I think back to, uh, well, it would have been 2002, maybe, that you uh, became Dean of Humanities and Theological Studies at Wheaton College. Was that right? Yes, actually, December of 2001. Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and so that brought you into more directly into my orbit because I had joined Wheaton College in 2000 in their biblical and theological studies, and you had been in the English department. So uh, moving into the uh, dean role brought us uh, brought us together, and uh, oh, it's just been such a delight to learn from you and to get to know you and. Um, yeah, so I thought we we would just talk. I mean, you're a poet, so you're creative, and I I just admire the the vision and the ability to to um, to see what might seem like just basic simple things in uh, in new and and deep ways. So uh, I but I wanted to start with another aspect of your life. You you uh, you're a Cuban American, and how um, how has that talk a little bit about your own growing up years and how you've seen maybe that particular Cuban American community uh, attitudes change or maybe stay the same over the the uh, decades? Yes, you know, um, I was not really aware of this part of my background until I was ten years old. Um, my father is was was, was he's, he's Cuban. He spent the first few years of his life in Cuba, and then he came to the states um, after the divorce of his parents. The divorce in those days was just incredibly, um, well, it's almost unspeakable. Um, his mother was Irish American. His father was was Cuban, big plantation owner on the end of the island, and. Um, when I was 10 years old, though, um, you know, I knew 
that we had a name. His name was Emmanuel Antonio Pelias, all right? <laughs> so I knew there was Spanish in the background somehow. Um, I knew there was Cuba somehow. But when I was 10 years old, the um, revolution in Cuba happened. And right before the revolution, um, we had relatives from Cuba, cousins of his, come and visit us and stay with us. And I remember hearing conversations, even though I was 10, I remember, I remember them talking about Batista, who was the dictator at that time, and how they wanted to get rid of him. And then a few months later, Fidel came into power, and there was great hope that he would return the island to some semblance of normalcy, um, because Batista was a very evil person. Well, what happened, of course, was not that. Um, what happened was that um, F Fidel, after about a year, it became very clear that there was not going to be room for, for my family there. And um, so this extended family, 50 or 60 people, every one of them left Cuba within oh one my. Or two, leaving everything behind. Um, and going not only to Miami, but to Boston, to Mexico, to Spain, scattered all over the place. Um, um, and, and I remember in my early years hearing a lot about Che Guevara um, and the romance that seemed to surround this figure, this revolutionary figure. And then later on discovering who he really was. This is not a person to be admired, to romantic, be romanticized. Um, and I think that was an awakening that a lot of people had. Um, that there are still those that who, who cling to that kind of myth, um, the Che Guevara myth. But um, but anyway, it 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 was a very it was a difficult time. My my relatives who who lived in Miami, who settled in Miami, were the ones who um, constantly talked about going back to Cuba. My other relatives who settled all over the States dug in and they, they had been professional people. They had to start from scratch. Um, the doctors had to go through the whole thing all over again, the lawyers, etc. Um, and they were very hardworking. And I think that's what, uh, I know most about my Cuban family is that hardworking, creative, um, nose to the grindstone people, not necessarily the most popular um, people among the um, Latino groups, primarily because among the Latino groups, they are probably the most Hispanic. Um, and that is kind of rather out of favor at the moment. So, oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. 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 But what happened was that my father um, grew up with these models of women that it seems counterintuitive. I mean, you think of Latino, Hispanic culture being very an macho. Well, my father and his family were professional women. Um, you know, even older than he was, they or, or his same age, um, and he was born in 1916. Um, they, he talked about one cousin who was an architect, another one who was um, a female who was a lawyer. 
So he had these images in his head. And so what happened when, when the 1950s and 1960s came along and I was growing up is that my father dreamed dreams for me that a, a, a usual Spanish man wouldn't necessarily be dreaming about for, for his daughter. Um, he wanted me to, to be a doctor. He wanted me to have a professional life. Um, and I, I, I have to give him a lot of credit uh, for, for doing that. I, I, I don't think that's, that was normal in those times, even in this country, for fathers to dream dreams for their, for their daughters. Yeah. And when you began to write, um, I mean, you have a number of published works um, with your poems. Was there any um, poem that uh, emerged maybe at the time when your father was also living that captured some of what you're talking about or ref uh, reflection on your growing up years or anything? You know, I, I wrote a, a series of poems called Finding Cuba. Um, and what I had to do, what I was doing in that poem was in that collection was was trying to figure out the mystery of why my grandmother left Cuba, this Irish American left Cuba, left the children. I, that was something I couldn't put my mind around, left the children with this husband. And, um, and so, you know, I wrote this trying to look into the mystery. I, I found some missionary manuals in the Wheaton archives that were written by people around the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century, um, about their experience in Cuba. And I was able to, to pick out a few of these um, stories that they told and put them in some of these poems. So um, I'd like to read a poem. It's That's called Exogamy. It's really about my grandparents meeting each other and what the attraction was. Total imagine. This is from my <laughs> Exogamy. The attraction. At first, it was the accents he detected in her speech. The inflections filled and formed her vowels, lingered over her L's, crisped her consonants. For her, it was the contradictions his black silk socks, his decisively knotted tie, his coffee plants blooming snow clouds, lemon trees, the limes, pomegranates, the Mexican rose, the mignonette tree, Spain and Ireland, Cuba and America. The marriage would be filled with space and air, escape from ordinary time to festival. What he did not say. The work of Cuban senoras, a little sewing and embroidery, siesta, sunset drives, daily mass with chaperones. She had not considered the tiny feet of Cuban women, ornamental, evidence they never were allowed to tread the ground. In paper soles, he kept her. An image on her steamship passage from New York, the death of a deckhand the body sewn in his hammock, his feet weighted with iron, the service ready for burial at sea, the corpse launched from a jerry-rigged grating, the water so calm the ship seemed anchored to the spot, 
The water so clear she could see the body descending slowly to the sandy floor. It bounced gently and then stood upright, its feet treading lightly the ground, wafted by gentle currents, walking the bottom of the sea, wrapped in its own bed. She would sit on the roof in the evening and breathe shallowly the breath of flowers, occasionally embroidering the veil for my aunt's first communion, twisting my father's curls when he pulled on her skirts and stood tottering before the inevitable collapse to the floor and his crawling patrol of the area that contained him. Her husband's sisters surrounded her, their children at their feet, all, everyone in white linen, gauze, silks. She thought she might die wrapped in such whiteness. His silences were absolute. He rolled them out like carpet and smothered her words before they formed. This was different from his early muteness, more ominous, like the silence between breaths, like waiting for the next that might not come. When my father read these poems, he said, who is going to be interested in our story? <laughs> oh, that was so beautiful. I'm just thinking, uh, you took my breath away. I, so that's your dad's response. Oh, you, he's, that's, that's pretty fun, though. And you, mm -hmm. and you wrote uh, a collection of poems, which you gave me, and I love reading over and over again, My Father's Bones. Oh, yes. Yes, that, that was... Um, that was really after, about my father's death. Um, um, so many of the poems in there, and um, yeah, and then I then later on I wrote another uh, another book um, called "What Cannot Be Fixed," um, where I'm you know I'm always dealing with the, the things that are lost, things that can't can't be fixed entirely. I mean, we're living in this fallen world. And boy, as women, we know that we are living in a fallen world every day. Um, and um, that comes out there too. Yeah. When did you, when did you know you were a poet? Oh, maybe about three or four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Is it something that someone has to tell you or does it emerge from your heart or? Well, you know, I wrote poetry growing up. Um, my mother was a writer. Uh, she didn't write poetry. She wrote children's books primarily in a young adult novel. Um, but she was always writing. So I, I had that as a model. Um, my, my father, when, he's, when he saw that my brother was, was, was interested in writing poetry, he said to my mother, don't encourage that. The next thing you know, he'll be in an opium den. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, well, and I, I'm pretty sure that was not the path you took. So <laughs> what's yeah, it like um, to write a poem? I mean, what does, does it just kind of come over you or? You, you know, it, it usually begins with an image something that haunts me. Um, a couple of examples. Um, I, there was a woman in my church several years ago who had a, a life of suffering, really, and then she, she, she had cancer, and she was going through chemo. And this was a time when everyone wore wigs or scarves or turbans. No one 
showed their bald head, you know, but she, she came to church bald. And so I, I wrote this, that, that was an image that stuck with me. I would sit behind her um, and it would be just something, uh, you know, your eye is drawn to that. And so I wrote a poem called For Sophie Bald in Church. It began with that poem, with that image. Um, another example, a friend of mine um, told me about a time that, that he was riding his horse and he came across an injured deer. And because he was on the horse, he could get close to the deer. If he had not been on the horse, the deer would have fled. But, you know, there he was, but he was helpless to, to, to aid this, this deer, um, even though he wanted desperately to do that. And so that image created, I think, one of my favorite poems, it's a long poem, so I won't read it, but it's called Deer Grass. And, and it really is about not only this image and wanting to help, it, it's about human relationships too. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So for those um, uh, listeners who might be thinking, boy, I, I would really like to develop um, my writing. Um, what, what advice have you found that that helps and what advice can you give for those writing poetry or otherwise? You know, I think um, the cardinal sin in poetry, as far as I'm concerned, is for, for a poem to be boring. <laughs> it's probably a cardinal sin for humans too, at least if they're doing podcasts. So hopefully we are not, <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're great. So um, yeah. To, um, yeah, to to upset the usual. This is what my mother always said. You know, in a poem, you've got to upset the usual, and it's it's a phrase which I've used all through my teaching years. Um, if a surprise doesn't happen as you are writing the poem, then you haven't finished the poem. Um, a poem usually happens in revision. And that's a, another problem. You know, as poetry editor of the Christian Century, I receive many poems every week. And so often I'll receive a poem and the, and the, the poet writes to me and says, um, I just wrote this yesterday. Here it is. <laughs> well, it's, it's not going to be finished. Um, it's not going to even be started. Um, so th that's important. Another um, problem I'm finding in contemporary poetry especially and for some reason, a, a poetry written by men, this is, this is not only poetry, but fiction also, this is a, a problem. And that is um, kind of a narcissistic quality. Um, um, very interested in becoming, in, in sounding profound. Um, not necessarily interested in communicating an experience to an audience. Um, so those are the basics, I think. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, what What's one of your, that you didn't write, but a poem uh, that someone else wrote that's one of your favorites and why? You know, anything by John Donne or George Herbert. I wrote my dissertation on John Donne. Um, but I have a poem here by Denise Levertov. Um 
It's from a little collection of hers called The Stream and the Sapphire, which I highly recommend because it is, these are poems of faith and of doubt also. And this is a short little poem. It's called The Avowal. And it is one of the best descriptions of grace that I've ever come across. Um, he, he's, she's writing this on the occasion, actually, of George Herbert's birthday. Um, the Avowal. As swimmers dare to lie face to the sky, and water bears them. As hawks rest upon air, and air sustains them. So would I learn to attain freefall and float into creator spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns that all surrounding grace. Oh, as you were reading that, I realized my shoulders are tense and I just breathed out. Oh, that's really you know, there's beautiful. nothing more difficult is there was when I remember learning to swim, I learned to swim when I was in fifth grade. And I remember how difficult it was to learn to relax enough to float on your back. And then later in college, I was required at Emory to take a drown proofing course. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, one of those too. I don't know if they have them anymore, but yeah, that was a rite of passage. And, and what I discovered there was that if you just are in the water, just relaxed, you will naturally float, you know, um, at least up to your forehead. Um, so yeah, this the um, no effort earns the all surrounding grace. That's so beautiful to 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 learn that though, and it's it's dif it's difficult to keep that in mind. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know this. Uh, you mentioned grace. How do you how do you think the your your study of poetry and your writing of poetry have shaped your reading of the Bible? Um, I, you know, I'll say something that will be very controversial. You like this, right? <laughs> I do, yes. I resist Bible as literature, I, the idea of Bible as literature, because it reduces a sacred book. Mm. Um, now, it's a way in for people who otherwise would not be interested and for that reason, I, I'll say, okay, yes, you know, it's probably, it's probably okay. But um, reading the Bible, um, yes, I think um, my ability to read poetry, to write poetry helps only because um, what I've learned to do in both is to pay attention, mm -hmm. to slow down. Um, Reading fast is not going to do it. Slow down, take it in, pay attention. Um, I think that's probably what I've, I, that is what I take to my reading of scripture. Also, using really good translations. I mean, I am in love right now with Robert Alter's translations of, of the Hebrew scriptures. I think he, I, I just, I think he's amazing. And I was going to ask, so when you were talking about not studying it as literature, but he has that great book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. Yes. Which he does try and, and look at uh, the Bible as literature, I think. Yeah. So it's interesting that, um, but you love his translation. How he, yeah. Yeah, it and, is. 
big contribution, yes. <laughs> That's all right. That's uh, they they both statements make a lot of make a lot of sense. Um, I find um, at times I struggle in reading a poem. Um, I remember one time uh, showing you a paper I was going to give, and I used um, Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. And uh, that seems like one that's often misunderstood. Maybe you could say the, you know, why it is often misunderstood. But then from there, what are some of the mistakes that, that we make when we read, read poems? Well, I think um, it connects with what I've said just a few minutes ago, and that is that we read them too fast and we expect immediate gratification. Um, some poems can be can be read fast. You can get them right away. But usually poems are dealing with, if they're dealing with a difficult concept, they're going to slow you down. Um, and I think with Robert Frost's poem, for example, that poem has been so misused and abused, I think, particularly at in, in, in commencement addresses, <laughs> where yes. you know, the argument is take the road less, less traveled. But if you read that poem carefully, you'll see that what Ro Robert Frost says is actually both, both roads were equally, um, um, what's the word I want, equally uh, accessible or inaccessible. Um, and that he chose one, and that later on, when he talks about this, when he tells about this, he's going to say he took the, the road less traveled and that made all the difference, but that isn't really the truth. That's a typical Robert Frost trick, I think. <laughs> what, what did he, what was he just playing with us then, or... Mm -hmm some irony there yeah there's a definite definite irony and and a realization that we recreate history as we our own histories later on yeah oh yes oh yes yeah well you also you you did your dissertation on john dunn but you've written as well on flannery o'connor who uh that's another figure you you like the hard people to understand <laughs> i confess flannery o'connor i like her short stories but they're she asks tough questions, doesn't she, about faith, about society. Um, what drew you to her as a writer? Well, I tell you, I didn't understand her. And I found myself teaching her my, my first year at Wheaton, not really understanding her, and then realizing that I had to really grapple with her. And just about that time, Dr. Batson, who was chair of the department, oh, this wonderful woman, came to me and said, you know, Harold Child Publishers is looking for somebody to write a book on Flannery O'Connor. Would you do it? Oh. <laughs> and I foolishly said yes, because it was an opportunity to grapple with her and to begin to understand her. Um, and um, yeah, she is, she is difficult because you don't expect this nice Southern lady to come up with all of these murders and violent images and and horrors in her she's known as a gothic um short story writer but what she's doing all the time in every single one of these stories where there's violence is presenting us with the scandal of the cross and showing us how sometimes it takes a violent confrontation 
a, a confrontation with our, the fact of our own mortality to wake us up and to make us ready for revelation. Um, and that's O'Connor in a nutshell. <laughs> so. Oh, but that, yeah, I would recommend her, her uh, short stories because you're right, they really do uh, raise that, that uh, question. It certainly would get me to think to think a lot. Um, do you feel, what, what would you say uh, her, she also had an illness that might've contributed a bit to um, her view on things. Do you feel that uh, her being a woman writer might've contributed also to how she wrote or how she saw things? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a difficult question because she was so completely unique in every way. Um, she also uh, drew cartoons and she, her original, her original ambition was to draw cartoons for the New Yorker. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. And, and uh, there are a whole slew of these cartoons now that have been published and one in the first edition of my book, they reproduced produced them. That was years ago. Um, I don't know that that her view as as a woman, she, she yeah, she had lupus and she died very young at age 39. Um, she really had to move home and live with her mother, Regina, um, to, to, who took care of her and, and O'Connor could only write two or three hours a day. Um, and it's really quite remarkable what she did with that illness. Yes, that illness made her aware of her own mortality. And I think she was able to see human complexity in a way which women uh, can connect to um, and, and which women writers seem to be able to do. Not that men don't do that. Um, I, I think um, um, Reed Faulkner, you know, um, but um, she's able to get outside herself and connect with something larger. And that is a gift that women have, I think in their, in yes. their poetry and in their fiction. You know, you were, you were, you've mentioned that you were a college professor, college professor for a number of years. Um, your daughter is also a teacher. What, uh, and, and, um, in, in um, high school instead of um, uh, college, but both teaching. Um, what do you think has changed uh, between your experience in teaching? What might be some roadblocks that were up when you were starting out that are no longer there now for your daughter? And then what, what do women still face? You know, I was so naive when I first started um, first of all, I was a Lutheran coming into an evangelical institution. And while I had been a part of an evangelical Bible study when I was in graduate school, I had never really been a part of an evangelical community before. And I came into a department where there were three women and mainly men. And But fortunately, one of the women was this Dr. Batson, this chair of the department. She was a magnificent mentor. Um, and in in some ways a, a protector and and she she gave me a, an awful lot of good advice um then later on um 
when I became an administrator, this isn't the teaching part, but I, I also had a mentor who, who was not female. Um, Stan Jones was provost. And I tell you, I learned so much from him. Um, and so these two, I, I would, you know, my advice to anybody starting, find good mentors and not just anyone will do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a woman, but it's great if it is. Uh, Dr. Batson understood what it meant to be the only woman at that time at Wheaton, um, female faculty with children, um, even though she was um, an academic nun, really. She she never married. Um, but she was very, um, I don't know, she was very careful with my scheduling, et cetera, to make sure that that she wasn't piling on, on too much of an impossible schedule for me. Um, I, I think one of the reasons I said yes to becoming dean, which was not something I ever had any ambitions to be, um, but one of the reasons was because I, I, I felt that I needed, there needed to be someone, someone in that position um, who would help the women faculty as they confronted the kinds of obstacles I confronted. And I won't go into that and be terribly specific, except that I will say this. I did, yes, suffer from sexual harassment at one case in one early on and went to the dean and the dean told me, at that time there was no policies about this, there was no you know, um, protocol, uh, what the dean told me was um, to have my husband talk to him. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is this is what I wanted to address, and I think I hope I did. I hope that I did. I I've read a couple of books recently that have put this whole thing in perspective for me. At the time, I didn't really. I wasn't really processing it all um, when I was going through all this, but one was um, one is this, this book, Doomed Romance, Broken Hearts, Lost Souls, and Sexual Tumult in 19th Century America by Christine um, Harriman. I think that's the way you pronounce her name, in which she talks about the difficulties that one woman had in the 19th century, trying as she a- attempted in an evangelical culture to become a missionary and she she couldn't. That's a um, fabulous book. You're right. I, it was hard to put down. I mean, it's he collected letters, right? Letters and documents. There's all these documents about her life in that situation. It's very compelling. It, yes, I. It's remarkable. It's but it also it happened a long time ago. But it also explained to me some of the some of the things that I confronted early on. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, and I mean, in the 1980s. Um, at Wheaton. Um, another one is the book, Jesus and John Wayne, um, how white evangelicals corrupted, uh, corrupted a faith and fractured a nation by Kristen um, Demez from Calvin. Um, I, I found that an amazing book. <laughs> I really did. It, um, especially in describing all of the instances of male figures High in the in the various churches and various evangelical denominations, who, you know, failed in their mission. Um, 
especially when it came to relationships with women. So, yeah. but let me tell you this. let me just say this. I loved my time as faculty and as dean. I I did. I loved my colleagues. I loved um, just about everything about the experience. There are a few stories I could still tell, but <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, anyway, I love wheat. So, yes, and I also know, though, as we close up here, you're loving retirement. And when you when you tell me all that you're doing, I think, well, that's not retirement. <laughs> but what are some of the projects that you're working on now, Jill, in your retirement, quote unquote? In my retirement, I can do whatever I want. And and what I've discovered that is, is poetry. Um, I I have a book coming out, uh, I hope in April, although the editor just told me that he wanted 12 more poems. I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, then I have another um, anthology coming out later on um, in two, uh, 2022 of um, the best poet, the best poets that Christian Century has published over the time I've been poetry editor, which is 25 years. Um, I'm doing a lot of mentoring. Um, I, I wrote a, a libretto for a cantata based upon Psalm 139 that is going to be performed. It was supposed to be performed in April of 2020 by the Boston Symphony Chamber Orchestra, but um, and then later on at Tanglewood. But of course, those events were canceled. So it should be performed sometime in the future. And that was just a whole lot of fun writing that cantata with it. Michael Gandolfi was the composer. Um, yeah, and you know, several other projects piled up here on my desk. And um, I'm, I'm also, uh, there's a sculpture from, um, um, Romania, whose piece of sculpture is now gracing the Performing Arts Center at Wheaton, and he and I are going to be working on a book together also. So, so it's just things. so much fun! Wow, so uh, so much diversity, and and uh, yeah, it's it is fun to sounds fun to pick your projects and uh, not have to go to meetings or do uh, faculty evaluations. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jill, for being on the Alabaster Jar and sharing your wisdom and your lovely poetry with us. I just so appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed this week's conversation with Dr. Jill Baumgartner and would like to explore more of her poetry, we've included a link to her books in today's episode description. Next week, we kick off a special Christmas series for the month of December. Be sure to subscribe so that you will be notified when we upload new episodes every Tuesday.